Welcome, I'm Paul Hunt. This is a special interview produced for download by Aspermont Media for Energy News. ASX-listed Empire Energy is a pioneer in the world-class Beetaloo Basin, which sits in the Northern Territory. The Australian government has been bullishly encouraging explorers to find new oil and gas reserves within the basin, citing the need for fresh gas supply for domestic and international markets, as well as securing Australia's declining fuel reservations. All this puts Empire Energy, listed as EEG, in an enviable position compared to many of its peers. Empire holds a massive 14 million acres of exploration leases throughout the region. It drilled its first well last year, encountering not just gas, but liquids. Empire Managing Director Alex Underwood says his company is on the cusp of transformation. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. We last talked in the final quarter of uh, 2020. A lot of progress has been made since then. At the time, you'd just drilled your first well, Carpenteria 1. Can you give us a bit of a recap of the journey so far? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we, we commenced our exploration journey in EP187 on the eastern side of the Beetaloo sub-basin uh, around the beginning of last year where we acquired 2D Seismic. Uh, that showed us that the shale formations of the Beetaloo Basin extended uh, from the Santos tenement into our area. And that, it, that gave us the confidence to drill our first exploration well, Carpenteria 1, uh, late last year. So, you know, we drilled one of only two wells drilled in the Beetaloo Basin last year. Uh, and we drilled that well to just over 1,800 metres. And what was very encouraging as a result of that well is that the Velkeri Shale extended over almost 1,000 metres of vertical relief within our well. Um, within that 1,000 metres, we've identified four thick zones of net pay within the Velkeri. That is from bottom to top, the Velkeri A, Velkeri Intra AB, Velkeri B and Velkeri C. Um, we saw from the uh, mud gas readings during drilling that for the first time of any Velkeri shale well drilled, we had the presence of liquid hydrocarbons within the gas streams. Um, then uh, as part of that drilling program, we acquired 50 large diameter sidewall cores right up and down through that sequence. And we sent those core samples over to WD Von Gonten and Co, uh, one of the premier shale gas analytical groups in the US. And they've been carrying out a wide range of uh, tests on our core samples to identify some of the key characteristics of these rocks. And it, put simply, these rocks uh, have been demonstrated to have the world-class potential that is spoken about regularly uh, in the broader discourse about the Beetaloo and, and comparing very favourably to some of the biggest and most productive US shale plays. So we've had a busy 12 months, but now we're getting ready for the next stage of our project, which will be, first of all, to update the resource assessments on the basis of the drilling and the, the core analysis. And then next quarter, we'll be carrying out our first fracture stimulation uh, in those key areas so we can see how these rocks produce. My guest today on Energy News is Empire Energy Managing Director, Alex Underwood. Alex, you mentioned the resource estimate. Um, 
independent firm Netherlands Sewell and Associates uh, have already provided you with a prospective resource of 13.7 trillion cubic feet um, of dry gas on a P50 basis throughout all of your tenements. 2.3 trillion cubic feet was based on the permit which you've just drilled, EP187. This was before you drilled the well and encountered liquids in the Velkeri Shale, though. Um, since drilling this well, what's changed to your resource estimate? So um, before we drilled the well, Netherlands Soil and Associates had assumed that the Velkeri Shale would contain dry gas within EP187. And, and there's a pretty simple reason for that. Every well that has been drilled across the basin to date until Carpentaria 1 has encountered dry gas in the Velkeri. Um, Origin Energy had uh, forecast that there may be a liquids rich zone around the basin's flanks as early as 2018, where they um, you know, had a technical paper at the APU conference. Um, but you know, Carpentaria 1 has demonstrated for the first time that there is this liquids rich window on the basin flank. So, so clearly that required some changes to the resource assessment. The other uh, material surprise that we had in the drilling program was that these shales came in much thicker than we had anticipated. So, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that uh, as you get to the basin flanks, the shales would get thinner and, and that was driving the original resource estimate. Uh, actually, the shales uh, had not only stayed thick, but they're actually thicker than any other Velkeri shale well drilled in the basin to date. And so that also had an impact on the gas in place number. So first of all, you know, there is an estimated three and a half trillion cubic feet of best estimate prospective resource for dry gas. So that's about a 47% increase on the previous estimate. Wow. But, uh, also for the first time, uh, Netherlands Sewell and Associate assessed prospective condensate resources. So we've got 27 million barrels of best estimate prospective condensate. Uh, but, but finally, also Netherlands Sewell analysed all these results and compared them to other wells drilled across the basin that have flowed gas to surface. And they formed an assessment that, you know, there are clearly movable hydrocarbons within 187. And therefore they uh, booked a contingent or discovered gas resource for the first time. Uh, it's only over a very small subset of the acreage in the immediate vicinity of the Carpentaria One well. So they've booked three 2C drilling locations and a total of five 3C drilling locations. And they've come up with a 41 BCF of gas 2C contingent resource and 86 BCF of 3C contingent gas resource. So, so these are quite substantial numbers. You know, clearly we have to walk before we run and we're gonna start off um, by looking to start getting gas into existing pipeline infrastructure, including the, you know, the infrastructure that goes right through our tenement. Um, but, but longer term, you know, resources of this scale uh, in our tenement and, and those uh, neighbouring us in the Beedaloo, you know, have substantial potential, not only for helping to ease supply constraints on Australia's east coast, but ultimately for LNG export. For those who may not be familiar with uh, how resources are booked and exactly what, say, 2C or 3C mean, can you give us a brief explanation of what that means? Yeah, sure. So, so basically, you start off with prospective or undiscovered resource, and that's really a, an estimate of, of what 
what the recoverable resource might be pre-drilling. Uh, you know, the, one of the key goals of our drilling program was to encounter these shales, which, which we did successfully. Once you uh, make a discovery, which essentially under the petroleum resource management system requirements is a demonstration of movable hydrocarbons, then you can move from prospective or undiscovered resource to contingent or discovered resource. The, the reason it's called a contingent resource is that there remain some contingencies to ultimately booking proved and probable reserves, which is you know, economically extracted reserves. And, and for us, you know, the, the main contingency really focuses on flow rate. So can we generate sufficient flow rates from the drilling of horizontal wells to recover that capital investment and, and also make a return for shareholders? And there are also some other contingencies such as, you know, signing gas sales agreement and access to market, which is all part of our de-risking process that we're working on. Let's look at the forward work program now. Um, you're going to be fracking and then flow testing the Carpentaria One well this year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we are at the very, very final stages of an approval process uh, to carry out the fracture stimulation of Carpentaria One. Uh, we've also carried out all of our traditional owner consultation processes. Uh, we went out to Borroloola in uh, November last year and, and updated the traditional owners of this land on what we're going to be doing. Um, you know, I, I'm really pleased with the, um, the level of understanding that traditional owners have around a lot of the technical issues and, and risks and mitigants. And, and we think it's really important to bring them along on our journey um, with us. Uh, the government approval processes are, are reaching their final stages now. And, you know, we expect to be the first company this year to take a frac spread up to the basin and carry out the fracture stimulation of Carpentaria 1 and flow testing uh, to commence in Q2. So what will the flow tests show you? Yeah, sure. So basically, again, going back to our work with uh, WD Von Gonten, what we're doing now is we are modeling all of the key characteristics of these rocks in the four key zones uh, of prospectivity that we have identified. Uh, that will also help us understand how to carry out fracture stimulation, uh, you know, to optimize uh, the frac design and, and to get a good fracture stimulation away. Essentially, what you're trying to do is, is, is get a, a nice, um, called, it's called a dendritic frac, so essentially getting those fractures to spread nicely out across the target zone so you can open up those pathways for production. Um, once that modelling work is done, we will then know where to land the uh, stimulation stages, and it, it's most likely that we'll do a four-stage frac, so open up uh, the A, the intra-AB, the B and the C. Uh, and then we then there's a process of dewatering. So a lot of water gets injected uh, as part of the fracture stimulation. And it takes a period of time, pro probably around four weeks uh, for that water to flow back. Uh, and then we'll start to see the, the unrestricted uh, gas flows and, and liquid hydrocarbon flows uh, from those zones. So, you know, it's the key goals of the program are, first of all, to, to flow gas to surface. Yeah, that is the principal goal of the program. But then also to look at the relationship in terms of flow rate between various zones uh, and also the uh, content of uh, liquid hydrocarbons, if any, from each zone. Because what we're trying to do with this fracture stimulation program that's coming up is identify which zone in our area is going to give us the best production rate. 
Mm. And the reason we want to know that is that the next stage in our program will be to take these vertical wells horizontal into those most prospective zones and, and put a larger number of fracture stimulation stages into the most productive zones. You know, going back to the US shale experience as an example, um, the, the two major breakthroughs in technology were one, the fracture stimulations, which in America are, are slick water fracks, which basically just means a vast majority of water and sand. Um, and then also going horizontal, because if you go horizontal and do say 15, 20, 25 frac stages, you're opening up a lot more rock and therefore getting much larger flow rates. And that's that's really where we want to go is, is to get to those much higher flow rates from the horizontal wells so that we can start moving towards commercial development. Will that frac program be an expensive initial program? So we're tendering right now, so I, I can't give you any numbers, but what I can say is that it will be uh, funded from our existing cash at bank. So right now we've got about 11 or 12 million Australian dollars of cash and we will be able to you know, very comfortably fund the fracture stimulation program from that balance. As it currently looks, I mean, you've got some core analysis now and you, uh, you're planning this four-stage frag. Um, which uh, formation or which part of the Valkyrie are you looking at in particular as a potentially the biggest producer? Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to say right now. I mean, the, um, you know, th there are a range of factors that, that go into what is likely to drive commercial success. So, mm. you know, some of the zones are th thicker than others. Some of the zones are more liquids prone. Um, you know, the, some, some of the zones that are deeper should have a bit more pressure and therefore higher flow. So, so it's really hard to pinpoint down right now. I think in the fullness of time, you know, over, over years and decades ahead, it, what we're seeing right now is that they will all be highly productive, but obviously we want to go after the most productive first. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a bit hard to, to pin it down now without having flow tested it, but yeah. um, you know, we're, We'll certainly have an answer to that question in the next few months. I note that you've also got uh, 2D seismic across EP187. Um, does that show you any other prospects within the permit? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we were able to do with our 2D seismic um, was essentially, you know, we've been able to de-risk that seismic because we now have a well that has been drilled through these zones. And so we can exactly pinpoint where the zones are at the Carpentaria one well site, and then extrapolate out from there um, what those zones look like across the block. What we can clearly see is that, um, you know, there are two key areas um, which, which appear to be, you know, part of one broader fault block. Um, one of them's about 40,000 acres, the other one's about 25,000 acres. It is unconstrained to the south, so it could be bigger than that. Um, and we'll need to do some more seismic to further delineate that. Um, but, you know, all of these areas are prospective for the Velkiri shale. You know, these shales extend over very large areas. They're very thick. Um, one thing that's encouraging about the results is that we can clearly see on the seismic that it's getting a bit deeper to the northeast in, in the two key areas. And that gives us a lot of flexibility around, you know, how, how deep, we want to go because typically when you go deeper, you get a bit more pressure and therefore higher flow rates. Um, but there's also more cost involved in, in getting to that greater depth. And, and it's likely to be drier gas the deeper we go. So, you know, we've got lots of running room. This is, 
you know, enough room for hundreds of wells. Um, but, you know, we've just got to walk before we run, establish flow rate, you know, look to get towards commercial flow rates and then think about development scenarios. You said that it, it, the prospect is is deeper towards the northeastern uh, side of the permit. And yeah. I think currently, if I'm right, you're, when, when you drilled Carpentaria 1, it was about 1,000 metres that you hit the Valkyrie. Yeah. Um, but you missed the uh, Kyella shale. Are there any indications that there could be Kyella shale formation um, up in that north end, uh, northeastern side? Yeah, it, it's likely to be there, but it, it will probably be much too shallow. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we think we hit a, a, a very thin seam of Kyala only a couple of hundred metres deep. So if we're going sort of 250 metres deeper to the northeast, then all other things being equal, that might be another couple of hundred metres deeper, but that is still likely to be too thin and too shallow. So our, our focus from, from here forward is on the Velcary. Um. The federal government, uh, as I said in the intro, has been very bullish um, about the Beetaloo prospects, um, which is a great sign for Empire. They've committed to underwrite up to $50 million of exploration work across the Beetaloo. Essentially, they're offering about $7.5 million uh, per well that an explorer drills um, up to three wells. Um, Has this changed any of your plans at all? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, first of all, we are very pleased with the level of support that both the federal government and Northern Territory government are giving to this industry. Um, you know, the Northern Territory government had to make some pretty t- tough decisions about whether to allow fracking because it was a, a pretty controversial topic. I think the decision they've made to allow the industry to proceed, um, but you know, utilising world, pl- world, world best practice uh, regulatory regime is appropriate. Um, the industry is proving that we can and do execute our work programs in an environmentally responsible manner, and we will continue to do that and prove it to local communities and, and to the broader community. Um, you know, the, the federal government recognises that gas plays an incredibly important part in our economy. I think one thing that is, is really important for people to understand is that you know we are moving towards a lower carbon intensity future. And everyone has to be on board with that, including the oil and gas industry. But I think it's also very important that people don't try to pick winners and losers in this. Mm. You know, the, the, it's called an energy mix for a reason. You can't just have solar, you can't just have wind, you can't just have hydro, or, or for that matter, you know, gas or, or, or coal. We need a mix of all energy sources as we move through that energy transition. You know, the, the cost of renewables is coming down all the time, but intermittency is a major issue. You know, right now, over the weekend, throughout the mid-con of the US, they went through such a cold snap that all the wind turbines have literally frozen and they're not turning. Mm. And gas prices have gone to extraordinary levels because there's suddenly a shortage in the market. So the federal government recognises that we need a broad mix and that gas plays a very important part in the mix because it helps resolve the intermittency of renewables. So I think they're getting the policy settings right on this. Um, You know, the $50 million drilling subsidy program is specifically designed to accelerate the Beedaloo Basin moving into commercial commercial production. Um, You know, we are firm believers in moving into commercial production as quickly as possible. We, as a small company, have to be very nimble and have to drive towards cash flow as quickly as possible 
um, so that we can sustain our operations through cash flow as, as opposed to you know, raising more equity or, or joint venturing. Mm. Um, and that's a big focus of ours. So we will definitely be applying for this uh, federal government program. Um, we're also working on a, an early commercialization strategy. So, you know, while the basin is remote and it is infrastructure constrained, it's not stranded gas. There is a pipeline through the basin. Uh, there are local markets for gas. And we think as a small company that's, that's looking to, you know, monetize our production early, we are very well placed to, to um, you know, look to early commercialization opportunities. You talk about um, ASAP um, commercialization, getting getting some revenue in there without having to go back to the market necessarily. What, how does that work? And, and, and I guess that's an initial phase development. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, a, a good example of another company that was really effective at, at this strategy that we're trying to execute was Queensland Gas Company back in the 2000s. So you know, they, they had huge um, volumes of, of prospective resource in the coal seam methane fields of Queensland. Um, and, and I think often it, it's difficult for investors to get their heads around how enormous these opportunities are because there mm. have been lots of companies over the years put out huge resource numbers. Um, but what Queensland Gas did in the early days, well before the Gladstone LNG export terminals were developed, was they found ways to commercialise in, in a in a smaller way, some of their um, resources so that then that allowed them to generate cash flow and continue to build. So, you know, they were doing projects that were sort of 10 or 20 terajoules a day of gas, going into things like local gas-fired power stations to power local communities. And then that allowed them to springboard up to much larger volumes of, you know, in the hundreds of terajoules a day. So, you know, that's that's the way we're thinking about this. Um, you know, the existing gas pipeline, the MacArthur River Pipeline, uh, it uh, goes right through the basin. It's only about four and a half kilometres from our wellhead. Uh, it's currently sending gas out to the MacArthur River mine, which is operated by Glencore. You know, that's, um, you know, that's a mine with a capacity of about 16 terajoules a day. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's those sorts of opportunities where we think, um, you know, bringing our small, nimble, you know, uh, company mindset to this, you know, we can find a fit-for-purpose solution where we... Um, you know, put in small scale surface infrastructure. So, you know, the separators, um, the water handling capacity and then compressors to get into the pipeline. Um, and that'll allow us to get into cash flow, uh, you know, in a couple of years time, rather than waiting for the big pipelines under consideration to go in to the East Coast and up to Darwin. Infrastructure's um, an interesting point because there have been a series of announcements over the past six months about uh, different pipelines and um, even rail as well. Um, there has been talk about a rail terminal. Is that how you'd transport uh, liquids? Yeah, so um, again, we need to see how many, what, what proportion of liquids we produce mm. and, and also what their chemical composition is. So you know, are we looking at more ethane and propane or, we, or are we looking at the butanes and pentanes and beyond um, in order to work out what our surface infrastructure facilities might look like? But, you know, in the case that the, um, the composition of liquids is large enough, um, you know, we, we foresee that the initial uh, production methodology for that would be that you would, you would separate the liquids from the gas, put the gas in a pipeline and then send the liquids along the Carpentaria Highway um, back to Tennant Creek, which uh, is on the rail line up to Darwin. 
you know, it's it, it all depends on what the volumes look like eventually. Um, you know, if they get big enough, um, not just from us, but also from others around the basin, such as Origin, who are clearly also um, interested in liquids potential, uh, then that may justify further pipeline development in future up to Darwin. Um, but, you know, it, it, a lot remains to be seen on that yet. Yeah. Um, you know, one point I would make as well is that the Northern Territory government is very supportive of further industrial development out of Darwin um, so that value can be added to hydrocarbon molecules in, in Darwin rather than exporting raw products. So that could mean, you know, um, downstream manufacturing, um, you know, petrochemicals and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, it really comes down to, to what sort of volumes we're looking at as to what sort of infrastructure development would be justified. Australia's East Coast is looking at a supply shortfall um, in the next five years. Um, it's interesting because I noted an Energy Quest report maybe a couple of months ago that uh, said it might be okay if there were two import terminals um, or, or and Narrabri, uh, Santos's Narrabri uh, came online. Um, but what does demand look like to Empire? I mean, having import terminals is still not a clear, uh, sure thing at all. Um, but but where where do, where do you see this going? Again, it, it's all about the mix, right? So mm. the, the most important thing is that barriers to new supply have to be continually reduced to allow the you know the animal spirits of entrepreneurship to 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 take these risks on you know, exploring new basins, developing new basins, you know, maximising the potential of existing basins. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of those barriers are coming down finally. So, you know, New South Wales being, you know, allowing the development of Narrabri, Victoria, um, you know, lifting its ban on onshore exploration drilling. Uh, obviously before that, the Northern Territory lifting the, the fracking moratorium. Um, you know, LNG import terminals, are likely to have a place. I, I foresee in, in decades ahead, all over Asia, there will be LNG import terminals. You know, countries like Indonesia, for example, that have lots of islands that, that cannot install pipelines all over the place, um, you know, already rely on LNG import. The, the, it, LNG import, though, it's not, a, it's not a silver bullet because if you want to import LNG, you've got to pay LNG prices to buy that gas, and then you've got to pay to regasify it. And so it's not going to be cheap gas. Mm. Um, you know, it's going to require lots and lots of sources of gas. And, you know, the exciting thing about the Beetaloo is that it's, it is a long way from the East Coast demand centres, but it's not so far away if the industry can prove up enough resource. So, you know, I think the biggest challenge in terms of pipeline infrastructure to connect the Beetaloo to the East Coast is all around how big do you make the pipes? Because if you make a one BCF a day pipe versus say a 200 MCF a day pipe, a 200 million cubic feet a day pipe, the one BCF a day pipe inherently has lower costs per unit because it's moving more gas to amortize that investment cost. So what we as an industry need to do is prove up as much resource as possible so that the pipeline companies can underwrite bigger pipeline construction and that'll bring down unit cost into the East Coast. And I think it will be highly competitive against imported LNG for, for the reasons I described.
Last year was a bit of a roller coaster for the oil and gas sector uh, quite broadly. While many other energy companies um, took major hits to their share price and market cap and other financials, Empire actually came out on top, uh, on top and has been performing quite well. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to ask you what your outlook for 2021 is. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we we were we we did go into the downturn relatively well positioned. Um, you know, we went through a recapitalisation program in 2018 and 2019. We sold off non-core assets. We dramatically reduced our debt balances. We increased our cash balances. So we went into it pretty well positioned. Having said that, you know, it was still a pretty um, you know, a pretty wild time. I mean, I remember oil going to negative $40 a barrel in the US. Um, as you said, gas prices hitting 25-year lows. Um, LNG prices into Asia going to record lows. Uh, and, you know, our share price took a major hit along with everyone else. But, you know, fortunately, we're in a position that, you know, with a pretty well-funded balance sheet, we didn't have to raise money at depressed prices or anything like that. So, you know, we were able to ride the storm and, and that gave us the courage to keep pushing forward on our work programs. Um, you know, it's, it's always difficult to crystal ball and work out where oil prices and gas prices may go in the future. Um, and, you know, if I knew, I probably would have retired quite a long time ago. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that there are a couple of key themes here, though. So, first of all, um, you know, there is chronic underinvestment in the oil and gas industry right now so you know over 10 years ago the amount of capex in the oil sector for example that was required to keep production going and keeping the world well supplied was about 900 billion us dollars per year globally we are now down well below half that um, a lot of that's driven by um, you know low recent oil prices significant balance sheet distress um, in in companies like the us shale operators um, but also significant distress around the world. So, you know, OPEC countries need much higher oil prices to balance their budgets, for example. So, you know, the, the oil price always lags the capex and the capex is chronically short. Um, you know, yes, we're going through a global energy transition, but major uh, countries in the Eastern hemisphere, such as China and India, are growing rapidly and are going to need to I need a lot of oil going forward. So I think you know there and and also with US dollar weakness as a result of you know these incredibly accommodative monetary policy programs around the world, I see upward pressure on oil prices. Um, in terms of LNG and gas, which is really what what is most important to Empire and its shareholders, um, you know there are new sources of LNG being sanctioned. The Qataris are making some massive investments in new capacity. Um, but again, you know, LNG in Asia, it's very similar to gas in Australia. It's, it's the perfect transition fuel. It's going to be needed for decades. You know, if you look at the BP World Energy Outlook for 2020, it's showing in a range of scenarios, even, even in a rapid energy transition scenario, LNG is going to play an incredibly important role in the transition and, and demand is going to increase. So, you know, we, we see that, you know, underpinning decent prices for LNG um, over the long term. But obviously, you know, who knows what might be around the corner with, um, you know, economic shocks and COVID. But, um, you know, overall, I think the outlook's looking pretty good from a, 
what was a, a, a pretty rough year. Well, for Empire, you've got uh, the East Coast market, you've got LNG exports potentially, um, but there was also an interesting conversation uh, had last year between the Northern Territory government and uh, and stakeholders about a potential uh, manufacturing industry boom in the Northern Territory. Is that something you you see happening? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, um, so so as part of the Northern Territory government's decision to allow the onshore gas industry to thrive, uh, they set up a gas task force, which was basically, um, you know, a, a group of highly respected senior Northern Territory figures. Uh, and, and the gas task force policy or, or mandate was to work out ways to maximise the value of the industry to Northern Territorians. And, and one of the things they found is that if you manufacture gas in the Northern Territory, as opposed to exporting the raw product, there's a very significant multiplier effect on, on economic growth because it creates a lot more jobs. Uh, they're well-paid jobs. Um, you know, the Northern Territory has a big issue with a transient population that tends to go up and down with economic activity. And so that would create more sustainable economic, uh, or sorry, population growth for the Northern Territory. Um, and so, um, you know, they have set up a five-point plan. And one of the aspects of this five-point plan is to encourage downstream gas manufacturing out of Darwin. So Darwin is already a major gas hub. Um, it's got the two LNG export terminals, ICTHIS LNG operated by Impex, Darwin LNG operated by Santos. Uh, but in the middle arm precinct of the Darwin Harbour, a number of large uh, pieces of land have been set aside by the Northern Territory government to attract that downstream gas manufacturing uh, hub. Um, you know, we have received inquiries from some of the major uh, petrochemical manufacturers around the world that are that have a watching brief on these opportunities, um, and they are particularly interested in some of those heavier end hydrocarbons that we have, such as ethane and propane, which are you know feedstock products for some of these petrochemical manufacturing processes. So, you know, it's relatively early days, but I think, um, you know, there are some major advantages that Darwin has. First of all, it's just about as close to Asia as you can get from any of the major um, gas supply uh, bases in the world. Uh, obviously, we have the world-class potential of the Beetaloo with, you know, the geology that is showing that it's um, becoming increasingly likely to replicate the US shale boom. Um, you know, Australia is, you know, as a as a liberal democracy with an effective legal system is is recognized as you know a very safe place to invest. Um, so you know there, there are some major advantages there. Um, but you know to 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 get that major infrastructure investment happening in the downstream space, what we as an industry need to do is demonstrate to those companies that we can produce large volumes of cost-effective gas and, and liquids. Um, and then, you know, I foresee that those investment dollars will come. Alex Underwood, we are out of time, but thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Good to talk. Alex Underwood is the Managing Director of Empire Energy, listed on the ASX under EEG.
Energy News is Australasia's most in-depth and comprehensive news service for oil and gas, hydrogen and renewables. You can find out more about our region's energy markets, operations and policy changes along with stories covering law, technology, workforce changes and more at energynewsbulletin.net. This podcast was produced by Aspermont Limited, news for business. 